This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Hamilton, Ontario, 1946. A headless human torso is discovered by a group of children. A dead baby is found in a suitcase, and a beautiful young woman is sent to prison for murder. But after serving only 11 years of a life sentence, she is released and given a new identity and a whole new life, courtesy of the National Parole Board. And then she simply disappears. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing Evelyn Dick back to life, the irresistible femme fatale who was the central figure in one of the most shocking murder cases in Canadian history. This is Where Are You, Mrs. Dick? Episode 3, Torso. Why did Evelyn McLean marry John Dick? That is the question that no one has ever really been able to answer. He was a Russian immigrant, a working-class guy with nothing to his name. While she was a young, raven-haired seductress looking for a better life, she was used to keeping company with much wealthier men who lavished her with gifts and money. And John Dick could do neither. Hamilton playwright and director Brian Morton has another explanation for the hasty marriage. She had to have a husband. Norman White was never coming home. If it's proven that you've had a child out of wedlock, Children's Aid Society can literally take your child. No questions about it. You have no legal rights whatsoever. They will take your child. So she has Maria. She has Heather. She loves that child. She doesn't want to lose that child, so she needs a husband in a hurry. And just a few weeks after her marriage, in October 1945, she had already moved on to another lover. And she wanted nothing to do with her new husband. And then, when he disappeared six months later, Evelyn wasn't the least concerned or upset. In fact, she seemed glad and told her mother that John Dick would never be bothering her again. Sadly, she was right. 
On Saturday, March 16, 1946, five young children out for a hike to Albion Falls found human remains on Hamilton Mountain. What's that? Initially thinking they had stumbled upon the carcass of a pig, they quickly discovered it was a human torso, missing its arms, legs, and head. The children, when they found the body, promptly did a human chain across the road and said, Mr. Mr., there's a body, can you go? Because they didn't have cell phones in those days, right? Can you go call the cops? So he drives to the mountain police station and says, uh, some kids inside the road say they found a body. The police arrived on the scene and quickly confirmed what the children had discovered. The torso was clothed in a one-piece underwear garment, size 44 according to the label, with the legs and arms cut off where the limbs of the body had been severed. Sergeant Carl Farrow of the Ontario Provincial Police noted that the torso was, quote, quite fresh with no decomposition, and it appears that all blood has been drained from the remains. The torso was photographed at the hillside site and was then hauled up the mountain escarpment using a rope and a basket. None of the missing body parts were found in the area, leading the police to assume that the murder had taken place somewhere else. Hamilton Mountain had just been the dumping ground. Coroner Dr. Isaac Crack examined the remains and determined that the body had probably been in the woods for several days, but due to the cool spring weather, it had actually frozen. Later that Saturday, Inspector Charles Wood of the Ontario Provincial Police Criminal Investigation Branch arrived from Toronto to take charge of the murder investigation. An official autopsy was scheduled for Monday, March the 18th, but until then, Inspector Wood needed to try to figure out whose torso was lying in the city morgue. News of the gruesome discovery traveled fast through the working-class city, and for some residents, this wasn't the first time hearing about a body dumped on Hamilton Mountain. Bodies were found on the side of the escarpment all the time, uh, and pre-DNA, to remove a head and remove hands, fingerprints and teeth records, basically meant that bodies were unidentifiable. Twenty years earlier, in 1925, another group of kids on a school outing had discovered the body of a young woman who had been shot in the head. She was never identified, and her murder was never solved. Hamilton was a rough, blue-collar town with big city problems, like prostitution, illegal gambling, drug trafficking, and a strong mafia connection. So the discovery of a torso led to all sorts of speculation. Was it a mob hit? Maybe it was the remains of reputed mobster Rocco Perry, known as King of the Bootleggers, who had disappeared two years earlier. His wife Bessie had been shot to death in 1930, and local newsmen speculated that Rocco had finally met his end as well. The day after the story of the torso hit the newspapers, an employee of the Hamilton Works Department contacted the police to tell them that he and his co-worker had come across a man's blood-soaked shirt near Mountain Brow Road on March the 7th. Later that day, the police retrieved the blue pinstripe shirt from where it had been left by the workman. The garment offered a clue as to when the murder had taken place, sometime before March 7th 
but it didn't give them any further information as to who it belonged to. They had a bloody shirt and a man's dismembered remains, but what they really needed was an identity. The day before the torso was discovered on Hamilton Mountain, Raymond Castle, a supervisor at Hamilton Street and Railway, had called the police to report one of his streetcar drivers missing. John Dick hadn't been to work since March the 6th, and he hadn't called in either. Castle gave the police an address on Carrick Avenue. This was the home John Dick had shared with his wife Evelyn until their separation two months earlier. And John Dick's supervisor wasn't the only person looking for him. John's cousin, Alex Kammerer, was also concerned about his whereabouts. John had been living with his cousin since separating from his wife, Evelyn, but they hadn't seen him since March the 6th. Initially, they weren't too concerned, thinking maybe John and Evelyn had reconciled and he was with her. But after a few days without even a phone call, they started to get worried. Had John returned to his mother and sisters in Vineland without letting them know? Alex called John Dick's brother-in-law, John Wall, but no one in the family had seen or heard from him. The last time John was in Beamsville was on February 28th to attend his grandmother's funeral. Knowing that he was distraught over his marriage breakup, his mother had begged him to stay, but he returned to Hamilton and they hadn't heard from him since. His niece later reported that he had told his family, if you don't see me again, you know who got me. But at the time, they didn't know what he meant. On the morning of Monday, March 18th, Dr. William J. Dedman performed a post-mortem examination on the torso that had been discovered two days earlier. Dr. Dedman aptly named, was one of Canada's first forensic pathologists and had become Hamilton's chief pathologist in 1919 after World War I. Also in attendance at the autopsy were Inspector Charles Wood of the Ontario Provincial Police and Detective Sergeant Clarence Preston of the Hamilton Police. This would be a joint investigation between the two forces. Upon examination of the remains, Dr. Dedman estimated the time of death to have occurred 10 to 14 days earlier. He also estimated that the torso belonged to a fair-skinned male, approximately 185 pounds, 5'10 to 5'11 in height, and 40 to 45 years in age. The victim's genitals were intact, but the body had one undescended testicle, which was rare at the time. Dr. Debin concluded that the head arms and legs had been cut off in an amateur way, with a saw rather than a sharp cutting instrument. And there was a foot-long ragged cut just above the belly button, indicating someone had tried to cut the body in half, but had abandoned the grisly task before it was completed. There were two gunshot wounds, one entry, one exit, above the right nipple, caused by a 32 caliber bullet but the wound appeared to be superficial and non-fatal. In his summary, Dr. Dedman wrote, The cause of death cannot be determined by the post-mortem examination, but death may have been caused by injury to the missing head. 
Later in court, Dr. Dedman testified it would have taken a person of great strength at least half an hour of continuous sawing to sever the limbs and the head from the torso. The day after the post-mortem was conducted on the unidentified torso, John and Jake Wall arrived in Hamilton to search for their missing brother-in-law, John Dick. But his whereabouts would not remain a mystery for long. The night before, Alex Kammerer had contacted the police when he heard a body had been found on Hamilton Mountain. When he described what his cousin looked like, the police suggested the remains were likely those of John Dick. On Tuesday, March 19th, the Wall brothers and Alex Kammerer drove to the city morgue. Nothing could have prepared them for what they saw. Lying on a table was the bloodless midsection of a human body with jagged, fleshy stumps where the head and limbs had once been. Jacob Wall took one look and ran out of the room. Despite the condition of the remains, John Wall immediately recognized the torso. After all, he had known the man for over 30 years. It was his brother-in-law. Three days after its discovery, the police were able to confirm the identity of the headless torso. It was 40-year-old missing streetcar conductor John Dick. Now they needed to find out who had murdered him. The Wall brothers and John Dick's cousin had no hesitation in pointing the finger directly at one person. Evelyn Dick, the murdered man's estranged wife. They didn't know her well, but John had told them many stories about how she and her parents had treated him. In fact, Evelyn had called the Wall House two days earlier looking for John. Not out of concern for his whereabouts, but because, according to her, he owed her money. On Tuesday, March 19th, Evelyn and her parents were sitting down for a casual lunch when there was a knock at the door. It was four Hamilton police officers with a search warrant. Evelyn did not appear at all concerned that the police wanted to search her home. When asked when she had last seen her husband, Evelyn said it was on March 4th. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. OPP investigator Charlie Wood then advised her that the torso discovered on Hamilton Mountain had been identified as her husband, John Dick. Evelyn remained expressionless. Don't look at me. I don't know anything about it, she exclaimed. The seasoned detective was shocked by her reaction and lack of emotion. Get your coat on, Wood said to Evelyn. They were taking her in for questioning. Evelyn's father, Donald McLean, asked if he could accompany her, and the police agreed. They had some questions for him, too. They knew about his volatile relationship with his son-in-law and his recent threat against him. On the same day John Dick was identified as the dead man, the police were fairly certain they had already narrowed in on their prime suspects. Could this turn out to be an open-and-shut case? A callous, cold-blooded wife murders her new husband and enlists her ruthless father to help cover up the crime and dispose of the body. Case closed? But Detectives Preston and Wood had never dealt with the likes of Evelyn Dick. She was a world-class manipulator. She had been using and seducing men for most of her life. And as far as she was concerned, the two detectives would be easy prey to her feminine charms. When they arrived at the Hamilton police station, Evelyn and her father were separated. Inspector Wood began the interview with Evelyn. After considerable back and forth, Evelyn admitted that she had borrowed a car from a friend on Wednesday, March 6th, the last day John Dick was seen alive. She said she did some shopping and returned the car later that day. Bill Landig owned the Grafton Garage, and he had loaned Evelyn his car several times in the past month or so. It was a 1938 eight-cylinder black Packard sedan. In fact, Evelyn had actually owned the car, but had sold it to Bill in lieu of some money she owed him. Bill liked Evelyn and had known her father for years. My friend Sylvia Fraser, who's 84 years old, she was very close to the Landig family and actually had dinner several times with the family in the 1950s. And even at the time, Landig literally did nothing but loan Ellen a car, but the public perception of that was that he was 
I wouldn't say he was under suspicion, but he his association with her did not bode well for the Hamilton community at that point, and ultimately he had to close his garage two, two years later. When questioned by the police, Landick had no trouble remembering the last day Evelyn had borrowed the car, because she'd returned it damaged. The front running board was bent, the car was covered in mud, and when he got into the car, he noticed a dark, wet spot on the front seat. Touching it, he realized it was blood. But Evelyn had left Landig a note, explaining the blood was from her daughter who had cut her face. She promised to replace the seat cover and a missing blanket. Back at the police station, as the interview continued, Evelyn said she knew nothing about what had happened to John Dick. But perhaps she could provide a motive for his murder. Evelyn told the detectives that her husband had been seeing other women, married women, and in fact one angry husband had shown up at her house looking for John. The man told Evelyn that John was seeing his wife, and if he didn't stop, he was going to fix him. Evelyn said the man was Italian, so she understood what fix him meant. The man had left a lasting impression on Evelyn, but not because of what he said, but by how he looked. She went on to say he was beautifully dressed, wore a flashy diamond ring, and had gold fillings in his teeth. Evelyn reiterated that she had gone shopping on March the 6th and had dropped the Packard off at the Grafton garage at approximately 5 p.m. before returning home. But now, there was more to her story. Shortly after getting home that evening, she said she received a call from someone whom she described as a gangster from Windsor. The man told her John Dick had gotten a friend's wife pregnant, so he had been hired to, quote, put John out of business. He said this to you over the phone, asked Detective Wood. Yes, he did, replied Evelyn. According to Evelyn, the gangster on the phone demanded that she drive to a rendezvous point to meet him. Naturally, Evelyn did as she was told and went to meet the stranger. But when she arrived at the designated spot, there were two men. One stayed in his car while the other approached her, dragging a large, heavy sack. The man told her he needed to get rid of the sack and threw it in the front seat of the Packard she had borrowed. Did he tell you what was in the sack? asked Detective Wood. Yes, said Evelyn, matter-of-factly. He said it was John. The gangster then instructed her to drive towards Albion Falls on Hamilton Mountain. When they reached Mountain Brow Road, he told her to pull over. Then he pulled the sack out of the car, removed John's body, or what was left of it, and threw it over the embankment. Then he instructed Evelyn to drop him off at the Royal Connaught Hotel, which she did. The gangster threw the bloody sack, the front seat covers, and John's shirt out of the car as they drove back down the mountain. For the two seasoned detectives sitting in the room, they weren't quite sure of what to make out of Mrs. Dick's very bizarre story. Wood asked Evelyn why these gangsters would have involved her if they'd already killed her husband and cut up his body. Evelyn had no plausible answer, but she stuck to her story. 
she described the man who had dumped John's torso as a short, stocky Italian with a slight foreign accent. When asked to describe the mystery man's clothing, she glanced at Inspector Wood's suit and said the Italian had on the same one, brown with stripes. And the man's shoes? Oxblood brown Oxfords, same as the inspector's. And what about the Italian's hairstyle? Also eerily similar to Inspector Wood's, according to Evelyn. Black, wavy, and combed back the same way. The detectives still couldn't believe what they were hearing. Did Evelyn really think she could charm her way out of a murder charge with this ridiculous story? Did she think the cops were dumb? Inspector Wood had finally heard enough. Mrs. Dick, did you take any part in the murder of your husband? No, no, replied Evelyn. I don't know nothing about where his legs, arms, or hands are. That wasn't quite the answer the detectives had expected. Finally, Evelyn decided she had said enough and told the detectives she was afraid that the Italians might come after her if she talked too much. They might even put a bomb under her house. But the detectives wanted to keep Evelyn talking, and they needed more time. While she was sitting in an interview room at the police station, chain-smoking and eating chocolate, the cops were gathering more evidence. Bill Landick's Packard was impounded and brought to the police station garage. And the police were searching Evelyn's Carrick Avenue house and Donald McLean's home on Roslyn Avenue. At Evelyn's house, they found a blanket that was missing from the Packard, a gold watch chain belonging to John Dick, and the dress Evelyn said she had been wearing the night John Dick was killed by the Italians. At Donald McLean's house, the police found a 32 caliber Harrington and Richardson revolver wrapped up and hidden in a drawer. Later that afternoon, Inspector Wood asked Evelyn if she would take a drive up Hamilton Mountain to point out where John Dick's torso had been discarded and where other items had been thrown out of the car. Evelyn was happy to help. When they got to the intersection of Mountain Brow Road and Flock Road, about half a mile past the Silver Spur Riding Club, Evelyn told detectives this is where the gangster had dumped John's remains. But suddenly, she had a new detail. She remembered the gangster's name. It was Tony Romanelli. When they returned to the police station, the police noted that Evelyn was in good spirits. But when she was told she would be spending the night in jail on a vagrancy charge, her mood quickly soured. The following day, March 20th, Evelyn stood in the prisoner's box at the Hamilton Courthouse. Wearing a chic black pillbox hat and a black and grey check suit, she kept her head bowed while two lawyers argued over her release. Orville Walsh, the lawyer representing Evelyn, was asking for bail, while Crown Attorney Harvey McCullough wanted her held in jail for at least a week until the police continued their investigation. The judge agreed with the Crown. Evelyn was remanded for one week and her new home would be the Barton Street Jail. On the next episode of Where Are You, Mrs. Dick? How long will Evelyn try to mislead the police with her bizarre story of a murder for hire and a mystery gangster named Romanelli? 
and the automatic assumption when John Dick's torso is found is that it's some kind of mob hit. And even Evelyn in her statements claims that it was a mob, you know, the mob basically killed him. Who else is she willing to throw under the proverbial bus to implicate in the murder of her husband? He was just a helpless sap that was sleeping with her and that when she was in being questioned by the cops, she kind of brought him in on the fifth and sixth statement, if I recall. And what other surprises are in store for the police when they search the basement and the attic of Evelyn Dick's home on Carrick Avenue? Uh, Carrick, of course, is where they found the uh, suitcase. And uh, there were some uh, bone fragments that were found in, in ashes in the back, which went some distance to implicate her. Evelyn, oh Evelyn, it's been a very long time since you went away from here. Your cigarette and big doe eyes. Your cigarette and big doe eyes. Evelyn, oh Evelyn, Dick, you were so pretty just a little bit sick. Mrs. Dick is written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. The song Evelyn Dick is written and performed by Mark McNeil. A special thank you to Mark McNeil and Brian Morton. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. For more information on this episode and other podcasts, visit us at storyhunterpodcasts.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.